Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On July 28, 1914, Europe's most powerful countries were pulled into an armed conflict that would be devastating. It became known as the War to End All Wars. While we call it World War I today, the globe had never seen destruction on such a massive scale. Across the world, an estimated 65 million soldiers marched, and many met their deaths as they were pulverized by machine gun fire blown to bits by mortars, disintegrated by strafing bombers, and poisoned by mustard gas. In the end, over eight million soldiers died, with many more millions wounded or missing. There were approximately 37 million total casualties worldwide. England grew desperate for workers to fuel the war effort, and so women became heavily involved in manufacturing. This shift in occupation would forever change social dynamics between the sexes, as these women had a taste of financial independence for the very first time. By the war's end in November of 1918, English women knew there was no going back. Young ladies in particular had grown to cherish the freedom their manufacturing jobs provided them. 21-year-old Bella Wright was one such woman. She had gone to work in a rubber factory and bought herself a bicycle with her new income. She rode that bike everywhere. It became a physical manifestation of her blooming independence. Yet this symbol of Bella's optimistic future would soon be twisted into a dark image of tragedy and sorrow. On July 5th, 1919, Bella Wright was found dead on the side of the road, her bike strewn across the ground beside her. Her mysterious death would become known across the country as the Green Bicycle Case, and the investigation would unfold into a drama that still haunts England to this day. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our only episode on the murder of Bella Wright, more commonly known as the Green Bicycle Case. We'll cover the investigation into her death and the circumstances that allowed her likely killer to walk away. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. 
Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Born in 1897, Bella Wright was a humble girl from the small country village of Stoughton, England. Her father was an illiterate farm laborer, and her mother was most likely a homemaker. Bella was the eldest of their seven children, and she often found herself helping out around the house, both domestically and financially. After completing a cursory public education at the age of 13, Bella went to work as a domestic servant. She was a dedicated employee with a strong work ethic and well-liked by those who knew her. When she grew into her late teens, she began courting a boy named Archibald Ward. But as the country became embroiled in World War I, Archibald became one of many young men who entered the war effort. Archibald specifically joined the Navy, becoming a stoker on a battleship. The two wrote love letters, their sentiments and longing passing from the peaceful countryside to the war-torn coasts of far-off nations. The couple planned to get married when the war was over, but weddings cost money. I'm sorry, Mother, but at this rate I won't be prepared for Archibald's return. You don't need to prepare. With his military record, Archibald will be able to secure a fine position and buy you a house in no time. Why wait? If I get a factory job now, we can marry as soon as he gets home. I know, it's just a factory job. You and father can't even read, and you'd have me turn my nose up at well-paying work? No, no, you're right. It seems to be what all the young ladies are doing these days. Just promise me one thing. Please stay safe. With her parents' blessing, Bella began searching for work in the nearby factories. When the war ended in 1918, it's possible that she briefly paused her search, wondering if her beau would get home first. However, Archibald's contract would hold him at sea until August of 1919. In the meantime, Bella found a job at a rubber factory in Leicester, a city five miles away from her hometown. In order to make the commute, Bella purchased a bicycle. Every workday, she would bike from her parents' home to the factory in the morning and back home in the evening. Her jaunts down the country roads became a time of peace and relaxation between the demands of her home and professional life. Bella began cycling on her days off, going on leisurely rides throughout the English countryside. The summer weather was perfect for a young woman exercising her independence for the first time. Her life fell into a nice, pleasing routine. She enjoyed the time she spent as she waited for her lover to return. It seemed nothing would impede her plans. On Friday, July 4, 1919, Bella continued this routine by working late at the factory. 
The extra hours drained her energy, but as she rode home, she felt the extra pay was worth it. She arrived at her house around 11 p.m. and said hello to her family and then immediately went to bed. Exhausted from her long day, she slept until late the following afternoon, enjoying her day off. When she finally awoke, she wrote a love letter to Archibald, then biked to the nearest post office to send it. Having planned a visit with her uncle, she continued down the road to his house in Golby, a small village four miles away from Stoughton. Somewhere along the way, she came across a man on a green bicycle. He was on a directionless, leisurely ride in the countryside, and it seemed he was eager to keep Bella's company. Hello, young lady. It seems we're both enjoying some time in nature. Mind if I ride with you and enjoy your company as well? As long as you're enjoyable to speak with in the first place. Let's ride a few miles, and you let me know how it's going. I suppose it couldn't hurt. The two continued on their bicycles, exchanging pleasant chatter, perfect strangers brought together by their love for cycling. In a short time, Bella arrived at her uncle's home, waved goodbye to the man, and approached the door. Her uncle's name was George Measures, and he worked as a roadman. His own daughter and her husband, James Evans, were also visiting when Bella arrived at 7.30 that night. Some of the dialogue in the following scenes comes from Sally Smith's edited transcript of the actual case. Evening, Uncle George. Bella, always good to see you. Come on in. Wait, a man just stopped in the road. Is he with you? He followed me here, but he's not with me. Do you know him? No, he is a perfect stranger to me. I'll sit down a little while and he will perhaps be gone. Bella joined her uncle and cousin in her uncle's home and they laughed and chatted for over an hour. As the sun lowered in the sky, Bella felt it was time for her to call it a night. Bicycling in the dark was dangerous, and one of her wheels had been giving her some minor trouble. After hearing about her wheel problems, James Evans and Uncle George walked outside with Bella to take a look. James was a bicycle enthusiast, and he got to work tinkering while George and Bella talked. But as the trio stood outside, the man with the green bicycle approached. Bella, you were gone a long time. I thought you had gone the other way. Yes, well, I was visiting with family, as you can see. Looks like a very pleasant family indeed. A pleasure to meet you. The pleasure is ours, Mr... Is something wrong with your bicycle there? There was, but I think I fixed it. Hey, speaking of bicycles, you've got a mighty fine one right there. Mind if I take a look? It'd be my pleasure. Wow, what a great machine. The man's appearance was rather nondescript and unmemorable, but his bike was captivating to James Evans. James and the man spent several minutes chatting about the bike's unique features. First, and most memorably, James noted the distinct pea-green color of its paint. The color was rare and striking, and it was a mark of some expense. Second, the bike had a three-speed gear. At the time, multi-gear bikes were quite uncommon. Finally, the bike had a highly unusual back-pedaling brake. Of all the bicycle's features, this was the most unheard of at the time. 
The unique bicycle lodged itself in James Evans' mind. He did not realize how important it would be at the time. Well, the sun is getting awfully low. I should head home before it's too dark to ride. Good thinking. Mind if I ride with you for a time? I doubt we're going to the same destination. But we're certainly going in the same direction. Well, I suppose it won't do any harm. Far from it. Around 8.45 p.m., Bella waved goodbye to her family and left with the man and his green bicycle. As far as her family could tell, she was completely comfortable in his presence. They watched her ride over the horizon, assuming she was going home. Little did they know, it was the last time they would see Bella alive. We'll explore Bella's mysterious death next. Hi, listeners. They say there's someone for everyone. A soul to share your secrets with. A companion to grow old with. A conspirator to commit crimes with. Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, discover the radical side of romance with a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Track the nefarious exploits of Bonnie and Clyde. Meet married mafiosos Jackie and Thelma Wright and uncover the secret lives of alleged spies Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from ParCast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now back to the story. Around 8.45 p.m. on July 5th, 1919, 21-year-old Bella Wright left her uncle's house in Galby, England, to ride home on her bike. She was accompanied by a stranger she had met on the road, and although she didn't seem uncomfortable at the time, it soon became clear that she should have been. At 9.20 p.m. that night, a farmer named Joseph Cowell noticed something strange on the Via Divana, a remote portion of an old Roman road known locally as Gartree Road. There, in the dim light of the setting summer sun, he saw a young woman lying on the side of the road. Her upper body was in the grass, her legs on the stone, and her bike was toppled in the path, its front wheel facing Lester. Joseph Cowell did not then know her name, but he had stumbled across Bella Wright. Her hat was still on her head, Her coat was still snug on her body, and her purse was still in her pocket. 
To Joseph, it almost looked like she had laid down to take a nap. Yet her fallen bicycle told a different story. As he got close, her face made the story a little more grim. Blood covered the left side and matted in her hair. Joseph assumed she was injured and picked her up to carry her to safety. Her body was warm, but her lungs were still. Bella Wright was dead. Foreman, come quickly! Oh my, Joseph. Is she injured? She's dead, poor thing. Good Lord. What killed her? Looks like she took a nasty spill, but I can't be sure. Watch the body while I fetch the police. Try not to touch anything before the constable arrives. With the body protected, Joseph Cowell ran back to his farm and settled up his cart and horses. While both the telephone and the automobile existed in 1919, they were not widespread in rural working-class areas. Joseph had to ride several miles to the nearest police station to report Bella's body. The sun had already set by the time he arrived in the town of Glen Magna. There, he found police constable Alfred Hall, a respected middle-aged war veteran who had only returned from the trenches a year or so earlier. I... Yes, yes, what's all this then? I... I found a... Get yourself together, man. Catch your breath. I found a young woman on Gartree Road, the Via Divana. She's dead. Does it look like foul play? Can't say for certain, but it's your job to find out, isn't it? That it is. Do me a favor, sir. Run to the post office. They have a phone there. Dial the operator and have her call Dr. Edward Williams. I'll meet you and the doctor by the corpse. With those orders, Joseph Cowell did as he was told. Constable Hall rushed to the scene and waited for the doctor to arrive. Dr. Williams finally joined him around 11.15 p.m. The duo examined the scene by candlelight, seeing if they could find anything out of the ordinary. Well, Dr. Williams, what do you think happened to the poor girl? Her body is still slightly warm. I'd hazard a guess that she's not been dead for more than two hours at most. Our friend, the farmer, might have found her only a few minutes after she died. That's all well and good, but what killed her? Exhaustion, most likely. Exhaustion? There's blood on her face. Yes. Well, it seems most likely she passed out while riding her bike, took an unlucky spill, and hit her head. Therefore, exhaustion killed her. Doesn't the blood look a little too neat to be from a spill, as you called it? The blood hardly looks neat to me. Besides, I'm the doctor here. I'm not so sure. Sure or not, I've done my duty. I'm going back to bed. Constable Hall was deeply unsatisfied with Dr. Williams' view of the case. The blood was too focused on her face, and none seemed to have gotten on the rest of her body. It looked all too much like some of the wounds he had seen on the front lines, wounds caused by bullets and bayonets. Besides, the girl looked far too young and healthy to have passed out from exhaustion. Dr. Williams may have believed it plausible that a woman fainted from simple physical exercise, but Constable Hall knew better. He resolved to search the scene of the crime for anything suspicious, but the night was too dark. His candles were too dim to do any real police work, so Constable Hall called it an evening and went to bed himself. 
He returned to the Via Divana at 6 in the morning on Sunday, July 6th. The sun was barely peeking over the horizon. Hall spent hours meticulously sweeping the scene, inch by inch. He examined every rock, every pebble, every blade of grass for anything out of place. The sun rose and began to fall, with the constable not finding a thing. However, in the evening, his dedication finally paid off. Six yards from where Bella's body was found, the constable discovered a bullet embedded in the ground. On a nearby fence, he found a bloodstain. And in the adjacent field, he found a deceased crow. The crow's feet were covered in hardened blood, its beaks spotted with red. When the constable cut it open, its crop, an opening in a bird's esophagus where it stores food for later, was filled with human blood. It seemed the bird had gorged itself on Bella's corpse, then choked on its feast as it went to fly away. And while the dead bird ultimately had nothing to do with the investigation, it certainly added a touch of gothic flair to the already tragic fate of Bella Wright. With a bullet in hand, Constable Hall summoned Dr. Williams to examine Bella's body once again. As they reconvened around the corpse, they conducted a second examination. The doctor started by washing the blood off of Bella's face. Your face is redder than hers at this point. What's that look like right there? A bullet wound. Right below the eye. With this discovery, Bella's death had officially become a murder. A subsequent autopsy found that the bullet wound was about as wide as a pencil. It had entered half an inch below and slightly behind Bella's left eye, passed through her brain, and made a larger exit wound in Bella's right parietal bone. This implied that the gun had either been below her and angled up, or she had been lying on the ground and fired upon execution style. A strange way for an English country girl to go. While they now knew that the girl had been murdered, Constable Hall still did not know her identity. That changed as soon as Bella's parents reported her missing to the police. The area was sparsely populated, and murders almost never occurred on their lush country roads. Constable Hall quickly asked the Wrights to see if this Jane Doe was their daughter. Much to the Wrights' dismay, the poor murdered girl was, in fact, their Bella. They told Constable Hall everything they knew about where she'd been the day before, and the constable soon followed up with her Uncle George about the matter. Dead. Bella's been murdered. My condolences. But if you have any idea who could that have... That man! That blasted man with the green bicycle! Green bicycle? Did you get his name? No, no, he never said it. My son-in-law just talked to him about the bike. Well, what did the man look like? Like a man. Average height, brown hair, plain face. If I saw him again, I could point him out to you, but if you're looking for a description, that bicycle was the only distinct thing about him. The green bicycle? A pea-green bicycle with three gears and back-pedaling brakes. You find that bicycle, you found the killer. With that, the investigation had begun in earnest. In the days following Bella's death, the town held a coroner's inquest. All the facts were gathered and the town was notified. Bella Wright had been murdered by a man who rode a green bicycle. 
The town was traumatized, but the press was enthralled. The story was so sensational and the image of a green bicycle so iconic, the mystery of Bella Wright's death became nationwide news at a time when news only traveled as quickly as the post. A country scarred by the deaths of millions in the Great War found themselves scarred once more by the murder of a single country girl on a peaceful country lane. Bella's funeral was held on July 11th, six days after her murder. Hundreds of people attended, including the press. As Bella was lowered into the ground, the search for her killer became the town's highest priority. The local police soon offered a five-pound reward for any information about the bike. It did not take long before someone responded to the reward. A bicycle repairman named Harry Cox had seen the bike before. So you claim to have seen the bike before? Seen it? I fixed it. Gave it back to the owner on July 5th, the same day that gal was murdered. The same day? What time? Man came by to pick it up around 2 o'clock. Said he was going out for a spin in the country. Incredible. What was the man's name? Don't know. He never gave it. What'd he look like? Uh... Like a man. Same description as in the papers. I'm sorry. Was this supposed to be any help at all? Don't know. You tell me. While Harry Cox may have helped them trace the mystery man's movements, his information did little to help them identify their killer, at least for the time being. The police continued their search, cross-examining any man with a green bicycle in the area. None had the bicycle they were looking for, and they couldn't find the man who had been seen with Bella. They scoured the crime scene for the weapon or any other clues, but ultimately they found nothing. In their desperation, they raised the reward to 20 pounds. After this, two young girls, one 14 and one 12, came forward and said that a man on a green bicycle had accosted them between 5 and 5.30 on the day of the murder. Unfortunately, the girls also did not know the man's name. The police searched for the bike for six long months, but as the warmth of summer faded away into the cold grip of winter, they were forced to give up their chase. It seemed the bicycle would never be found and their killer would never be caught, but a strange surprise would soon bring the case hurtling towards its gripping conclusion. We'll investigate that shocking discovery next. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. 
run your way. Now, back to the story. By January of 1920, after six months of investigation, the search for Bella Wright's killer had gone cold. The police's main piece of evidence was a description of the man's distinct green bicycle. But the bicycle seemed to have vanished into thin air. It seemed all hope was lost, at least until February 24th, 1920, when hope resurfaced on the Soar River. In the cold winter air, a laborer named Whitehouse used his barge to haul coal down the riverbank. His horses pulled the barge while he steered. Whitehouse had grown so used to the rhythm of his work, it was almost relaxing. Yet that rhythm was disrupted when the rope pulling his barge dipped below the river's surface. Whitehouse had his horse speed up, and the rope pulled tight. It raised itself back out of the water, and brought something else up with it. For just a split second, Whitehouse saw the frame of a bicycle. A bicycle painted green. The frame fell back into the water, but the barge man knew exactly where it was. He finished his work for the day, then returned the next morning. He dredged the river's muddy waters until he had unearthed the green bike's frame and his front tire. Even though some parts were missing, there was no doubt in his mind. This was the bike in the papers. This could lead the police to the killer. Whitehouse turned his discovery into the police, who accepted it with great excitement. In turn, they ordered that the whole river be dredged, just in case they could find something else of value to the case. Laborers spent the next day pulling up the riverbanks, They found the bicycle's rear tire, its gear wheel cranks, and its pedals. Nearly every piece of the bike was now in police hands. Some distance away from the bicycle, they found the holster for a service revolver. The revolver itself was not in the holster, but several bullets were. Those bullets were the same caliber as the one found at Bella's crime scene. Now they had their bike and a potential connection to the murder weapon. This was the break in the case the police had been waiting seven months to find. With the bike in hand, they immediately checked to see if it had any intact serial numbers. The manufacturer normally printed two serial numbers on the outside of their bicycle's frames, but the police quickly discovered that one of the serial numbers had been filed off. While normally this would have been a devastating blow to the police's case, it seemed the criminal was unaware of the second serial number printed on the inside of the bike's front fork. Thanks to the owner's oversight, the police were able to get a legible serial number, 103648. They traced this number to a bike shop in Derby called the Messrs. Orton Brothers. There, they discovered the bicycle had been made special order 10 years earlier for a man named Ronald Vivian Light. It seemed Ronald had moved out of Derby many years prior, only to move in with his mother in her home in Leicester. This placed him in the area during the summer of Bella's murder. However, since then, he had found a job as a mathematics and science instructor at a school in Cheltenham, a city 75 miles southwest of Leicester. 
The police tracked the now 35-year-old man to Cheltenham and interviewed him about the bicycle at their earliest opportunity. Ronald Light. You must be Superintendent Taylor. My boss told me the police were looking for me, but I've no clue what it's about. I'm told you were the original owner of an item of interest in a case I'm investigating. What became of your green bicycle? I never had a green bicycle. You purchased one from Messrs. Orton at Derby. No. Be careful what you're saying there, boy. Okay, yes, I had one, but I sold it years ago. I don't know who to, as I have had so many. That may be true, Mr. Light, but you'll need to come with me. I've got someone I'd like you to meet. After Ronald lied about owning the bike, the investigators' suspicions were raised. Ronald was brought back to the police station in Cheltenham, and on March 4, 1920, they had him stand in a police lineup with eight other men. The police brought in Harry Cox, the bicycle repairman, to see if he could remember who had picked up the green bicycle from his shop on the day of Bella's murder. That's the guy. Plain looking, but I'd remember him anywhere. <laughs> well, Mr. Light, you've tried your best, but Harry Cox just pegged you for a liar. Lawyer! I demand a lawyer! The police kept Ronald Light in custody, and over the next few days had more witnesses see if they could pick Ronald Light out of a lineup. Most significantly, both Bella's uncle, George Measures, and her cousin-in-law, James Evans, identified Ronald Light as the man who had ridden off with Bella less than an hour before her death. In those days, murder was almost always a capital charge, and it seemed like Ronald could feel the noose tightening around his neck. Thus, he took an action that would reset the course of Bella's story forever. He hired a lawyer. But not just any lawyer. Ronald Light's father had been a fairly wealthy engineer who owned his own collier, a coal mining company. As such, Ronald had enough cash to hire barrister Edward Marshall Hall, the single most famous defense attorney in all of England. Edward Marshall Hall's skills in the courtroom were legendary, and the prosecution knew they would have to bring their A-game if they wanted to see Light convicted for the murder of Bella Wright. As such, they dug into his past to suss out any dirty secrets. They found plenty. In fact, Light had a history of sexual deviancy. While attending secondary school himself, he had been expelled for sexually assaulting a girl half his age. He eventually graduated from school and attended college, but he wasn't as ambitious or studious as his peers. After working for a railway company for some years, he enlisted in the military and served in France during the First World War. But he was discharged after a few months for poor performance. After he re-enlisted, he was sent away again for falsifying orders. He spent a year in military prison, then returned to the front once more. This time, he was sent home for shell shock near the end of the war. When he returned to England in 1918 at 33 years old, he had difficulty finding work and was forced to move back in with his mother in Leicester. At some point in this period, he was accused of the attempted rape of another teenage girl. After learning of his past, the prosecutors only grew more convinced that they had their man. Unfortunately, they would still have to prove as much in court. 
While Ronald's past was clearly checkered, English law prohibited any defendant's personal history from being brought up in a trial as evidence of his character unless the defendant or his lawyer were to raise that history themselves. This made the prosecution's case all the more flimsy. The trial began on June 9, 1920, almost a full year after Bella's death. It proved to be the event of the summer, as dozens of people packed into the courtroom to witness the proceedings, and thousands across the country followed the story in the papers. The prosecutors began by laying out the evidence piece by piece. Ronald Light was the man last seen with Bella, only about 40 minutes before she was discovered dead. When he was first questioned about the bicycle, he had lied to the police and claimed he never owned it. He filed the serial numbers off his bike and disposed of the evidence in the canal, including the holster for a weapon of the same caliber as the bullet found at the scene of the crime. On the day of the crime, he had reportedly accosted two teenage girls as they rode their bikes. Ronald's creepy behavior, his proximity to the victim shortly before her death, and his evidence-concealing actions after the crime all showed him to be the killer. The prosecution's case was convincing, but sadly, it was entirely circumstantial. Beyond the eyewitness statements from before Bella's demise, they did not have any concrete evidence proving Ronald Light's involvement in Bella's death or any evidence hinting at a possible motive. The prosecution's argument may have gotten a conviction in nine out of ten trials, but Ronald Light had had the money to hire Edward Marshall Hall, and that legendary defense attorney was able to pick their case to shreds. Now, Ronald, you admit that you were the man seen leaving George Measure's house with Bella Wright. Yes, that was me. Were you with her when she died? No, sir. I rode my bike beside her for a little while before we parted ways. So you did not kill Bella Wright? If you did not kill her, why did you file off the serial numbers on your bicycle and toss it into the river? Why did you lie to the police? To save my own life. You knew the case had made national news. Your bike had made national news. You knew you were the last man seen with her. And you knew they would try to hang you for something you didn't do. That is correct. So you believed it was better to lie than to die. Who among us cannot agree to that? And if I may make one final entreaty to the jury, the prosecution cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt that my client killed that poor woman. They cannot even provide a motive. As such, it behooves you to set my client free. If you don't, you will be hanging an innocent man. Edward Marshall Hall lived up to his legendary status. He had seen right through the prosecution's case and devastated their hopes for conviction. Ronald Light was certainly the most likely culprit, but the prosecution had failed to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The jury felt they could not hang him for the crime. On Friday, June 11th, the jury spent three hours and three minutes deliberating on the case. When they returned to the courtroom, they pronounced Ronald Light not guilty. He was free to go. As the news spread across the nation, people were instantly divided. Many believed Ronald Light had gotten away with murder, but there was little they could do. 
According to author Sally Smith, who studied the case, the man could not be tried for the same crime twice. The story almost ended there. Ronald's guilt could have existed with a shred of uncertainty for the rest of time. Yet, Ronald didn't leave it at that. Three days after the trial, on June 14th, Ronald went to the police station to collect his belongings. According to documents released many years later, he had a conversation with a police superintendent named Bowley that shed new light on the case. It's all there, Mr. Light. No one at the station touched anything. So it is. I guess I'll be on my way. But can I tell you something, Mr. Bowley? Just between us. Suppose so. It was an accident. What are you saying, Ronald? While we were riding, she asked me about my time in the war. I pulled out my service revolver to show her that I was a crack shot. And I don't know if it was because I had been riding all day. I don't know why, but the gun just went off. My God. What did you do with the gun? Threw it in the same river that I threw the bike. Just in a different spot. Probably be impossible to find now. Why are you possibly telling me this? I guess I just had to get it off my chest. Well, thanks for hanging on to my belongings. I'll be on my way. Superintendent Bowley typed up a statement describing this conversation, but it simply got filed away. Most likely, this was because there was nothing the police could do, and the department felt it was better to avoid controversy by keeping this strange confession secret. There's some speculation about the document's authenticity, but most researchers believe it's credible. There is also some reason to believe that Ronald's confession was a lie. The gunshot wound and the evidence at the scene seem to be better explained by an execution-style killing rather than an accidental misfire. It seemed Ronald may have made a partial admission to ease his own guilt, while also concealing responsibility for his homicidal actions. Ronald knew that most people believed he had gotten away with murder. Perhaps admitting to manslaughter was simply his way of getting ahead of the story. But in the end, it didn't matter. Following the trial, Ronald Light changed his name and moved to the coastal town of Kent. There he lived a long and full life, then died of old age in 1975 at 89 years old. The confession was hidden from the public eye until it was discovered in police archives in 2017, almost a full 100 years after the murder. After examining all the evidence, there is very little doubt in my mind that Ronald Light was the man who killed Bella Wright. Her death may have been an accident or it may have been murder, but Ronald Light certainly pulled the trigger. I agree. If this case teaches us anything, it seems to prove that sometimes the only difference between guilty and not guilty is a shred of doubt and the money required to hire a good lawyer. Ronald Light literally got away with murder. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. 
For more information on the murder of Bella Wright, amongst the many sources we used, we found Notable British Trials Series number 87, Trial of Ronald Light, The Green Bicycle Case, edited by Sally Smith, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Giles Hofseth with writing assistance by River Donahay, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Eddie Lee, Ellie Schiff, Laura Faye Smith, and Dan Velasquez. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Listeners, don't forget to check out the new ParCast Limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.